0: Hello and welcome to the Talk Neuro to Me podcast. On this episode, we discuss neurodegeneration and diet with Dr. David Clark. To learn more about the updated neurochemistry and nutrition program, visit carrickinstitute.com. Hello, Dr. Clark, can you hear me? I can. All right. Hey, good morning. Thank you for coming on the show again. Really appreciate it. You're welcome. Awesome. Hey, so uh, this is the second time we had you on. We had a really good response the first time. And this show's topic, we're going to be talking about uh, neurodegeneration, but specifically uh, using diet for neurodegeneration. So I think this is going to be really interesting. I hope so, yeah. Yeah, awesome. Hey, so let's let's start off with the basics, right? Because I don't want to make any assumptions about our audience. And hey, I could use the education as well. Like, what are we talking about? What is neurodegeneration?
1: Uh, well, in a nutshell, I, I try to explain it like a, a, a spectrum. <clears throat> you know, neurodegeneration is on the far right end of the spectrum, but it starts on the left side of the spectrum with neuroinflammation. So, neuroinflammation is—you know—you can think about inflammation in the body, how you get some kind of tissue injury or some kind of infection. Well, that same kind of thing can happen in the central nervous system, except you don't have to have an infection for inflammation to start. You basically just have to get microglial cells in the brain to get turned on or activated. And they can get turned on in a lot of different ways. And we obviously don't have time to talk about all the different ways that neuroinflammation starts. But <clears throat> a couple of things I, I think are, 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 are really important to note is that you know the microglial cells can be turned on through lack of oxygen. They can be turned on through a failure of autophagy or a Mm -hmm. failure of mitophagy, which are topics we talk about in in the neurochemistry course, Mm -hmm. Uh, they can also be turned on through excitotoxicity. And one of the things I think is real important is to understand that microglial or central nervous system cells can be turned on by peripheral immune system activation. So what I mean by that is if you have inflammation in uh, your gut or inflammation in your knee, We know now that that inflammation is not confined to your gut or to your knee. It's going to be communicated and sometimes trafficked into your brain and your central nervous system. So, peripheral immune system activation can turn on inflammation inside your brain. Now, once that starts, you know, if it's not well controlled, it can lead to apoptosis. And I want to make a distinction between apoptosis and necrosis, because that's where you kind of cross the line into from neuroinflammation into neurodegeneration,
2: uh-huh, so
1: okay. apoptosis is where you have more or less programmed, controlled cell death, uh, you know, the cells shrink, uh, but you still kind of maintain your ATP levels, you maintain your, the homeostasis of ions, um,
0: so you it, t- <laughs> it's not always a bad thing?
1: Oh, no, no, in fact, it, it's, we like it,
0: okay, right? because it's a not
1: yeah. Apoptosis is controlled demolition. You know, it's like when they're blowing up an old football stadium, they set controlled charges. Experts do it. And, you know, you, you implode the thing in, internally. You don't just blow it apart and, and affect blocks and blocks of uh, houses around it. Mm-hmm. And that's a, kind of a goofy metaphor, but that's what happens when you have enough neuroinflammation that you trigger apoptosis because you get these things called death effector proteins But you can block it i mean you can actually block apoptosis uh biochemically we won't go into that right now and the key thing here is that when you have neuroinflammation that leads to apoptosis Mm -hmm. it doesn't adversely affect your neighbor your neighboring neurons okay so that's the real key difference between apoptosis and moving across the little line in the sand into necrosis so with necrosis instead of getting cell shrinkage like you do in apoptosis you get cell swelling you get organelle damage, ATP goes down the toilet, you lose your ion homeostasis. And, and necrosis sounds a lot like what people may have uh, heard trans neuronal degeneration described as. Hmm. Um, it's a lot of the similar sorts of processes that happen. But basically, in necrosis, all heck breaks loose. You know, you, you lies your nucleus, it's irreversible, protein synthesis stops. But here's the key thing necrosis promotes the death of neighboring cells, okay? So neurodegeneration is when we cross that line from inflammation into necrosis and we start to actually lose neurons. And the way I'll give you just kind of a a definition, I, I call it a neuroinflammation, neurodegeneration spectrum. And the key thing here is neurodegeneration is characterized by progressive deterioration, progressive, progressive deterioration of the structure and the function of neurons and is accompanied by, eventually, cognitive deficits. And those cognitive deficits show up in people that get, for example, dementia. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And as a kind of a scary prediction of how many people are supposed to have dementia by 2050, uh, and this is probably globally here, but it's 135 million persons are projected to have dementia by 2050. And that was based on some Uh, a study from a couple years ago. But for me personally, I think that's terrifying. Uh, And just oddly enough, just yesterday I was at the gym and I noticed a guy and I was like, this guy's got dementia because uh, he couldn't understand how to use the little uh, stationary bike. You know, and Hmm. he was, you know, he's probably in his 60s, but this is a guy who I was told by another gym goer that had been going there for 20 years and all of a sudden he didn't know how to use this bike. He didn't understand that that if he stopped pedaling, the bike stopped pedaling you know what I mean? So that's a cognitive deficit, and I thought to myself, this guy's demented. Was also, uh, <laughs> he was also a butthole. He was really angry and irritable, and these are all the kinds of changes you start to see when neurodegeneration starts to progress. You start to lose function, and you lose it in different parts of the brain, which we don't have time to, to go too much into, but you know, just talking about dementia for a second, dementia is the loss of cognitive functioning, which means your ability to think, remember, Behavioral abilities, such that it interferes with your daily life, and that's exactly what this old guy at the gym—he wasn't even that old. He was like in his, probably his late sixties, but that's clearly what this guy had. And I thought I wanted to go up to him and say, "Hey, you know, can I, <laughs> can I tell you about the Mediterranean diet?" You know, uh, but that, I didn't—I didn't do that because I you know, opt for obvious reasons.
0: Right. Well, um, you know, I was going to ask you. it was like, "Hey, who, you know, hearing about uh, apoptosis and necrosis?" I was like, "All right, well, who gets this?" and sure. why. And you're right, it, it is kind of terrifying when you think about it. I mean, we, it sounds like we're potentially all at risk for something like this if we're, if we're not careful.
1: Oh, yeah, we, we all are. But, you know, we've all got the, the machinery built in. I mentioned I mentioned earlier, you know, you got mitophagy and autophagy, which are the ways that your brain kind of cleans up its junk and uh, maintains a homeostasis. And then if you do get neuroinflammation because you have a, an autoimmune problem, or you get a, a, a brain injury or a concussion, or you... Uh, develop a hyperleaky gut—all things we talk about in the course. You know, you've got some mechanisms built in to try to control that. But one of the key problems with the brain's immune uh, activation is that it just doesn't have some of the players that you have in the peripheral parts of your body. Like there are no regulatory T cells in your brain. So once inflammation kicks off in the brain, it can be a real, a real pain. Uh, to stop and get rid of, and we're all at risk for. And and just talking about risk for real, risk factors. These are things that we are. now I'll just give you a couple of risk factors for cognitive decline, and associated with that cognitive decline, neurodegeneration. Okay. Uh, having a vitamin D level below twenty. Okay. Hold now on. just
0: below twenty.
1: Yeah. So twenty, and and we me- we measure that nanograms per milliliter here in the states, but. If your vitamin D is below 20, that's a risk factor for cognitive decline. We know that from a, a study from JAMA Neurology from two years ago, and another uh, journal of Gerontology from last year. Now, 20, I got to tell you, if you run labs on people, you're going to find a lot of folks with vitamin D below 20.
2: Well,
0: yeah, uh, that's why I heard that number. I'm going, whoa. That's, I mean, that's pretty much almost every patient I've ever measured, right? Because, because it, it yeah, just didn't well, know better.
1: Well, they also, here's the thing, the, the, if you do the, the, the vitamin D test, like at Quest or LabCorp, they'll tell you that the lab range, that 30 is considered sufficient. Mm-hmm. So most doctors that your patients, people that are listening here, that your patients are seeing, if their vitamin D is a 30, they're not going to say anything about it. But you have to understand that you're, you're a known risk for cognitive decline if it's below 20. Uh, and I got to tell you, that's not that 10 points is uh, not a big uh, wide canyon. So I think there's a lot of people walking around. In fact, I know there is that have vitamin D below 20. Now, well, where do you enough, like
0: your patients? If I could ask that before you move on, uh, just
1: generic, generically, generically
0: yeah.
1: just across the board, it's got to be in the 50s.
0: Yeah, now, I was going to say 50 to 70 is kind of where I am. Oh,
1: totally. Yeah. Now, there's actually research to show that in autoimmune patients, particularly MS patients, uh, it needs to be in the 60s and 70s. And there's, I'll just give you a little note. A lot of doctors that mean well think that like 80 or 90 is high for vitamin D. It's not. It's not high at all. You don't have any worry about toxicity until you get to like 120. So a vitamin D like in the 70s, 80s, that's pretty doggone good. And you don't have to worry about, you know, ODing someone on vitamin D, especially if you're smart and you recheck them like you're supposed to. Here's another risk factor, obesity. We, we, we know that obesity is a risk factor for cognitive decline. Now, let me just ask you, how many people in this country are obese? More every year, right? Oh, I mean, you, you, walk, you literally walk down the street, you go to any store, you're going to see someone who is le- legitimately obese. Being obese is inflammatory by its very nature. It just is. And that's why it's such a risk factor for so many different uh, neurological conditions and just metabolic problems. So one of the applications I can tell you right now for people that take the course and and that just from today is help your patients achieve a healthy weight. Now, you have to know how to do that, but that is not a too crazy goal, right? You don't have to really give people a lot of supplements or whatever just to train them and educate them on ways they can control their weight if the patient is ready for that, Mm -hmm. which is a whole other topic. Now, another risk factor, which I think is really interesting, is there was a study published just last month uh, in January from The Lancet and it found that living near a major road, now that's about 54 yards away, right, half a football field, living near a major road close to heavy traffic was associated with a higher incidence of dementia. Wow. But, but not, they also looked at a couple, but not for Parkinson's uh, and not, if I get it right, not for uh, multiple sclerosis but definitely it was for dementia. Now, that's a whole other topic we could talk about. Why is it such a risk factor? Well, if you think about it, there's noise pollution, there's obvious just pollution coming out the tailpipes of these things, and air pollution in general, um, for example, is also one of the major risk factors for the development of autism. So, there's a couple of risk factors, vitamin D below 20, obesity, living near a major road, about you know half a football field away, and another one is old age. <laughs> as you get as you get older, that's the biggest risk factor for neurodegeneration. Um, so as we all age and our population ages, we got a lot of people we got to take care of. So who has neurodegeneration? Well, people with who get diagnosed with Parkinson, you know they've got neurodegeneration. Uh, if they've got dementia, they've got it. If they have the spectrum that leads to Alzheimer's, and I'm just going to take a second to explain that. So, in Alzheimer's, the kind of spectrum that leads to that is the first stage you have covered kind of on the left is you have subjective cognitive impairment, meaning the person feels like their cognition is impaired. I just had a lady here yesterday, Cha and had been years, but she had she said, "I don't feel like I'm thinking as fast as I used to." Well, that's mm-hmm. subjective cognitive impairment. Now, you move from there into mild cognitive impairment. and you can assess that real easy with a, a Montreal cognitive assessment. It takes about five minutes to do in the office. It's called a MOCA. Um, if you score below a certain level on that, you have mild cognitive impairment. But then the next thing after mild cognitive impairment is Alzheimer's. So all of those people with those diagnoses, you can be sure that they've got some degree of neurodegeneration. And again, one of the reasons that happens is you, have, you get chronic neuroinflammation that I, again, that's kind of a stupid metaphor, but I tell people to think about the old uh, cartoon character, the Tasmanian devil. And, you know, when he spins up and goes, you know, starts spinning around and going nuts, that's kind of what neurodegeneration is. It starts to take out and clip other neurons and you get collateral damage from it. (laughs) So you should be you should for sure think that anybody that you see that's diagnosed with this has got neurodegeneration. The stuff that we're going to talk about here in just a minute, th- those are things you can use with those people. Now, another group of people that, uh, that, if you want to try to be more proactive and more detective about it, you should be suspicious of neurodegeneration in any patient with physical fatigue or mental fatigue. Now, that's a lot of people. I mean, right. that's a lot of people. That come in, but there's a cool paper that came out a couple years ago in uh, BMC Medicine, that basically said, hey, you know, we know that there's imp- uh, there's a whole degree of of data that shows that conditions such as MS and Parkinson's and chronic fatigue, those are all associated with inflammation, oxidative stress, you know, gray matter atrophy, uh, glucose hypometabolism in the brain, cerebral hypoperfusion, and without going into that paper in depth, basically what they conclude is is this, and I'm going to quote from the paper. It's concluded that peripheral inflammation, right, peripheral inflammation, and immune activation, together with the subsequent activation of the glial cells and mitochondrial damage, so they're describing kind of a cascade that happens, but but notice they start that with saying peripheral inflammation, likely account for the severe levels of intractable fatigue and disabilities seen in many patients with neuroimmune and autoimmune diseases. So, both mental and physical, actual physical fatigue, where you're weak, which frequently accompany immune inflammatory and neuroinflammatory disorders, are the consequence of interactions between multiple pathways. So here's the application of that.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: If you have a patient who comes in who has chronic, apparently idiopathic fatigue, meaning they can't find a reason why they're fatigued, and if they have concomitant cognitive fatigue, you really have to suspect... If, it, if they don't already have these, you have to suspect the patient's got an autoimmune condition, neuroinflammation, or neurodegeneration, or all three of them. Hmm. So that's something that can be a bit mind-blowing overwhelming, but here's the thing. Here's what you can do for some of these people. You can use diet, number one, to try to prevent this whole cascade. And probably the, the biggest, most studied diet is not paleo, by the way. The big, biggest, most studied diet is the Mediterranean diet. Now, what exactly that diet is, like what does that mean? That depends on who you ask. Um, but essentially, it's characterized by a limited intake of animal-derived and processed foods. Now, that's exactly opposite of what the big hot thing has been for the last several years, several years which is the paleo diet, right? right? Where we eat bacon and pork, and hamburger every meal, and, you know...
0: It also has the support, of it, uh, support in it for like some autoimmune conditions. So some, we could have some, I think, increasing evidence in support of that diet.
1: Yeah. and But in terms of neurodegeneration, I'm not saying paleo diet's bad, by right, the way. Right, I, right, I'm
0: right, not saying no, that at right. all.
1: Because I, I use a form of that diet with a lot of people. Mm-hmm. But when we're talking specifically about what's been studied Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of neurodegeneration and preventing this kind of cognitive decline stuff, it's the Mediterranean diet. So, again, what characterizes it is a limited intake of animal-derived and processed foods and the consumption of a variety of plant-based foods, fruits, vegetables. Uh, They go, say, breads and other whole-grain cereals, uh, nuts, beans, seeds, wine, and olive oil. Now, I won't go off into whether I think bread is a problem or not because... I'm giving you just kind of a real general sweeping generalization here. The next key, and by the way, you can look up what, what, what where am I getting this from? There's a study from the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition a couple years ago that outlines this. In fact, there's tons of studies on this if you just go to PubMed. The next feature of a Mediterranean diet is red meat only a few times per month. Per month. Hmm. month, right. Fish once or twice per week. But here's the thing the Mediterranean diet, this pattern is not really strict and allows for some leniency in food intake. You now, in the Mediterranean diet, I was talking about somebody like this the other day. Most people, when I say Mediterranean diet, they think, oh, what Italians eat. Well, Italy's not the only country on the Mediterranean. <laughs> you know, you've got, you got Spain, you've got France, you've know, you got North African countries that are on the Mediterranean. So it's not just what Italians eat, which I think is interesting. But it seems like in our country, when you say Mediterranean diet, people go, oh, what Italy, what, what they eat in Italy. Like, well, not really. So, the Mediterranean diet is really low. It's it's a heavily it's mainly a vegetarian diet. You know, you know you've got fish once or twice per week. Red meat is limited. Uh, Dairy products are limited. Uh, Not a lot of cheese and milk in there. And another study that came out in uh, 2015 from the Neurology, the Journal Neurology, said that that higher fish and lower meat intake that might be the two key elements that give this Mediterranean diet its benefits on brain structure. Now. So we're not just talking about, you know, your cognitive ability, the way you subjectively think about it. We're talking about how the Mediterranean diet does affect brain structure. And I'll give you another study that just came out and, and this year in the same journal, Neurology. They did a, a study of uh, some people in Scotland. And just so everyone knows, Scotland is not on the Mediterranean. Okay? <laughs> it's, it's totally different. And they don't eat in Scotland typically mm-hmm. what people eat on the Mediterranean. So they did a, a study of 400 individuals from Scotland who were in their 70s. And what they basically found is those out of that 400 people the ones that were low consumers or didn't the lowest eaters of the Mediterranean diet had significantly lower total brain volume. Okay? Over 3 years. So over a 3-year period people that Ate the lowest amount of this Mediterranean diet versus people that regularly adhered to the diet, they lost brain volume. That's terrifying, you know. That's terrifying. Hmm. But it's but it is powerful. Now, again, I don't have time to give you uh, what you know. When we talk about Mediterranean diet, a lot of times people want to say, well, how many calories a day should I get from beans or whatever? That's really not what the Mediterranean diet is about. I'm sure you can find a cookbook or or some book that will tell you that, but it's. The Mediterranean diet is more about the general guidelines, which is that you get the majority of your lipids come from olive oil, not butter or milk. You're only eating red meat once or twice per month. You're eating a lot of vegetables. You're eating beans, nuts, seeds. You're eating fruits. They have wine. You know, uh, Also whole grain breads. Now, as I said earlier, that may not work with uh, certain populations, but that's the general characteristic. Does that make sense?
0: No. No. It it does. I'm just um, processing all of this because this is, uh, you know, it's like I've never at, personally I've never done a Mediterranean diet, and but I'm comparing it in my mind as you're kind of going through it to the Paleo diet, which is <laughs> different. <as> some, yeah, I'm <laughs> <some> kind <laughs> of kind, kind of going here. I'm like, okay, well, you know, I've done Paleo before and I've enjoyed it, and uh, yeah. I've had these benefits from it. But then uh, then I hear the positive neural uh, protective benefits of Mediterranean. I'm like, hey, my brain, pretty important.
1: Yeah. You know, and like I said, there's nothing "quote unquote" wrong with the paleo diet, but the fact is there just hasn't been enough study on it the way there has been the Mediterranean diet, and certainly not a study on it in terms of how it affects brain structure, brain function. So that's why I'm that's why I'm going over the Mediterranean diet since we're talking about neurodegeneration. Now, here's another really interesting thing that some of you guys may have heard about um, is Parkinson's disease and the risk or Preventing or, or you know, changing the trajectory of Parkinson's disease using nightshade plants. So let me explain what that is. Mm-hmm. So there's a there's a genus of plants called Solanaceae, right? Or Solanaceous vegetables. Now, they're also called nightshades in a certain part of the world. So what are these things? Well, there are different kinds of annuals and perennial herbs and vines and shrubs and etc. And a lot of them that are in this nightshade family are certain foods that you've heard of. Uh, medicinal plants, spices, weeds. Now, many members of this Solanaceae contain alkaloids, very potent alkaloids, and in fact, some of them are toxic. But here are some of the plants that you may have heard of that are nightshades. Potatoes, tomatoes, eggplants, peppers, and tobacco. Now, tobacco is a nightshade, and in fact, in large quantities of nicotine, obviously you find in tobacco, but you actually find nicotine in lower concentrations in potatoes, tomatoes and peppers.
0: Mm, now why that? Away with that I did, I did not know that at all. <laughs>
1: yeah. And uh, it's interesting because there's a study done in 2013 from the Annals of Neurology and it says they actually studied this. It said that the, the title of the study is nicotine from edible Solanaceae and the risk of Parkinson's disease, okay? So here's the highlights of it. Okay. What they found is they, they took 490 newly diagnosed idiopathic Parkinson's disease cases over 16 years. <clears throat> Excuse me. And here's what they found Parkinson's disease was inversely associated with consumption of all edible solanaceous vegetables combined. So the more of these peppers, tomatoes, potatoes that you ate, your, your Parkinson's, it was inversely, it, w- it was opposite that. So the more of that you ate, the lower your risk of Parkinson's now an inverse association was also evident for peppers specifically so peppers out of those foods seem to be the most uh protective against parkinson's and here's, what the, here's the quote for the quote from the study dietary nicotine or other constituents of tobacco and peppers may reduce parkinson's disease risk however confirmation extension etc cetera, etc cetera. but that is a really interesting finding Um, needless to say, I eat bell peppers three or four times a week now (laughs) because, uh, I ain't getting Parkinson's, you know, I'm going to do my very best. But it also, that thing about nicotine, it's been known for a while that nicotine seems to decrease the risk of Parkinson's anyway, which, you know, I'm not going to go through all that, but we talk about that in the, in the study, but dietarily those nightshade plants, tomatoes, potatoes, peppers, uh, those do seem to confer some protective benefit against the risk of getting Parkinson's and Parkinson's is a neurodegenerative condition. All right. Um, so let's, let's talk about specifically using diet for treatment for neurodegeneration. So, you know, preventatively the Mediterranean diet is the most well studied, uh, risk factors were vitamin D deficiency, obesity, living near a major road, getting old. And we just talked about, you know, using nightshades, uh, particularly peppers, uh, to try to prevent some of this stuff. Now, when we talk about diet, basically the most effective thing that, we, that has been found for neurodegenerative conditions in terms of diet is restricting calories. And there's a couple different forms of that. There's just generically we call it caloric restriction. In fact, caloric restriction is really the only thing that's ever been shown to, to extend the life of any organism is restricting calories. So you may have heard of modified fasting or intermittent fasting, uh, Those are all different ways to restrict calories. And then there's also the ketogenic diet, which I'm sure everyone here has heard of as a treatment for epilepsy. So what I want to do is I kind of want to just hit on these uh, for a few minutes to kind of give people an idea of what this is. So um, let me get to the thing I want to talk about. So one of the things that may happen when you restrict calories and you do intermittent fasting is what that may do is enhance synaptic plasticity which we like. right? Uh, if we're talking about someone that with a neurodegenerative condition, we want to enhance synaptic plasticity. One of the ways that it might do that is it might increase something called brain-derived neurotrophic factor, uh, which we don't have time to talk about, but just trust me, that's a, a good thing. Caloric restriction is also known to increase the activity of something called CERT one which basically lowers inflammation and enhances dendritic outgrowth and plasticity. So, on a molecular kind of level and a, a neuron scale, restricting calories and doing intermittent fasting, what it does, it is anti-inflammatory, uh, and it also can improve plasticity through a lot of little kind of machineries that we don't have time to get into the details of. So um, there's a bunch of different benefits. So I'm trying to think exactly which part I want to talk about. Um Let's talk about the ketogenic diet first. I think that'll make more sense. So okay. a ketogenic diet is a diet that helps you produce ketone bodies. And probably the most notable example of any kind of dietary treatment with proven efficacy against a neurological condition is the ketogenic diet for use in patients with, uh, with epilepsy. So a ketogenic diet is essentially a very high-fat, low-carbohydrate uh, diet. And as I'll tell you, it's very difficult for most people to follow. And, but, the, but the cool thing is, is there's a way to get ketones, there's a way to get ketone levels up without actually doing a ketogenic diet, which uh, I'm going to, I'll throw out there as a little uh, grenade, and we'll come back to it in a second. <laughs> so the two hallmark features of a ketogenic diet are you get a rise in ketone body production by the liver, and you get a reduction in blood glucose levels. Mm-hmm. Um, this might regulate membrane excitability by blocking voltage-gated sodium and calcium channels, you know, going back to Module 1 of our series. Uh, It might reduce inflammation, and it can also uh, reduce reactive oxygen species in our mitochondria. And ketone bodies by themselves have been shown to possess neuroprotective properties, and they raise ATP levels. Uh, They reduce reactive oxygen species. They can stimulate mitochondrial biogenesis, which is a good thing. And you can get stabilized synaptic function. Um, in Alzheimer's disease, there's been a couple studies of the ketogenic diet, but you know, the, the studies haven't been that great, to be honest, and so the results are kind of equivocal. But it may be an effective diet for those people. Uh, in Parkinson's disease, you know, there's been a, a little bit of information about that, but but one of the things with Parkinson's disease is that those patients often get a defect in their mitochondrial complex number one. And ketone bodies can short-circuit that. They can go right around that defect and provide the mitochondria with a fuel source that the neuron can use to make ATP and thus stabilize membrane function, etc. There is some research that's, I think, going on right now using... uh, I'm kind of going to steal my own thunder... Using MCT oil in treating uh, Parkinson's and Alzheimer's patients. Uh, in fact, some of it has been completed. And MCT oil is something that is extremely useful in getting ketone bodies up. So I'll, I'll tell more about that in just a second. Uh, there was a study, uh, gosh, 12 years ago, uh, 2005, and it was published in Neurology. And basically, they found that you know people with Parkinson's disease were able to prepare a ketogenic diet and adhere to it uh, for you know at least a month, and so the fact that they could do it for a month is great. But you know if you've ever tried to do an actual ketogenic diet, it is not easy, and it's typically a four to one ratio of four parts fat by weight to one part of carbohydrate. And, and then, I don't know.
0: I remember this years ago, people would have to test whether uh, in a ketogenic state yet yeah, with the urine strips, right? Oh yeah, absolutely.
1: Yeah, yeah. You you look for ketone bodies and ketosis by getting the in the urine reagent strips and doing that. And the thing to remember about this is that diet is not dangerous. I mean, it has been used for decades uh, for people with medication resistant seizures. It's difficult to follow, but you know it, it can be it can be used uh, really for weeks on end as long as you're monitoring it. Um, there are a couple other things that can promote uh, ketosis. And uh, autophagy, which I mentioned earlier, is one of Mm -hmm. these processes that I won't won't get in too much because we can kind of go down the rabbit hole with it. But ketogenic diets seem to induce autophagy, right? And the ketogenic diet is also very similar in principle to just restricting calories in general, doing this kind of intermittent fasting, which I'll I'll break down in just a second. But there are, Uh, Some other agents, which seem to also boost autophagy, since I was just mentioning it, Uh, metformin, you know, which is an anti-diabetic medication. Uh, But the problem with metformin is we also know now metformin will deplete B12. Um, So just a little side note to people. There's also uh, a substance called berberine, um, which is also known to boost uh, autophagy as well, or seems to anyway. And another thing that you can do is you can ingest or eat medium-chain triglycerides. Uh, which come from uh, coconut oil. We're going to pause for a second while my phone rings. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no worries, no worries. It's actually me prank calling you. Sorry, I couldn't help. Oh, yeah, don't prank, <laughs> don't prank me. Don't prank me. We'll have to deal with that later.
1: Um, all right. Where were we on? We're talking about ketones.
0: Autophagy, yes
1: Yeah, so... I'm going to kind of skip through this and kind of get to you know well actually here's a good point I need to make about nutritional ketosis versus pathological ketosis so big important thing if you're going to do this with people you understand the difference between the two so nutritional ketosis is a normal physiological response to sustained low carbohydrate intake which also gives you low plasma glucose and low insulin and you get plasma ketones uh, really increasing after a week or so now, Nutritional ketosis, like I just described, has never been shown to induce ketoacidosis. Now, ketoacidosis is an alteration in acid-base balance um, that you sometimes find in people who are diabetic or who have uh, renal disease. You understand the difference?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, this—I mean, this is what the this is what they told us uh, in school, which is what was bad about. Uh, being ketosis, right? But I, I mean, I like the way you're making distinction between one and the other here. And it's actually something that nobody's ever done for me. So this is great. Yeah.
1: But the thing is, is you've got to really monitor people though, right? Mm-hmm. So nutritional ketosis can be sustained for weeks, months. I mean, it, there, you can do it for a long time, but depending on what your level of skill is, it may be outside your wheelhouse. But I just want to make sure everyone understands that when we're talking about ketosis, we're not, that's not the same thing as ketoacidosis. Because ketoacidosis means you've got a change in pH, which can be uh, very dangerous. Mm-hmm. And as I said earlier, actually uh, adhering to the ketogenic diet can be really difficult. So here's another way that we can increase ketone bodies. Uh, obviously, you can get it by following that 4 to 1 fat carbohydrate uh, diet. But you can also do it by taking about 20 to 70 grams per day of medium-chain triglycerides containing uh, these... What we call 8 and 10 carbon fatty acids. So just hold on for a second because 20 to 70 grams per day is, is a lot.
0: <laughs> See, that's what I, was sh- I was writing it down and I'm going, hold on, that's a lot.
1: That is a consume lot. consume that much? Well, the thing is, is a lot of times when studies give you this, what they're giving you is how much coconut oil you would have to get to get that. Now, fortunately, we have MCT oil now because when you talk about, uh, you know, uh, coconut oil, there's only a, a a portion of about 15% of coconut oil is is these ketogenic medium-chain triglycerides. So MCTs, for everyone who doesn't know, are medium-chain triglycerides. And coconut oil has medium-chain triglycerides. It has long-chain triglycerides. And there's only about 15% of coconut oil by volume or weight that actually is these MCTs that will produce ketone bodies, Okay. So there's some studies to sh- that have done with uh, Alzheimer's patients to show that you can get improved cognition by giving people uh, ketogenic substances. And one from, I guess it was two years ago, said that intake of MCT oil increased serum ketone bodies, which is great because that's what we want, and an improved memory. Okay. So remember, one of the things we're talking about is neurodegeneration. And one of the things that happens as you get destruction of neurons over time is you start to lose function, you start to lose... Cognition, memory, behavioral sorts of uh, regulation. And there have been studies showing using ketones uh, and ketone body inducing substances on on these patients. Now, this study from 2015 said that consumption of 56 grams per day of MCTs for 24 weeks increased the serum ketone bodies uh, and was, you know, it did modulate cognitive function. Now, there's another study, and I'm just kind of going through these so you guys understand that there is a basis for this. Uh, another one from 2015 in the in the journal Alzheimer's Dementia. Um, it's a case report. I'm just going to tell you real fast. It was a 63 year old uh, Alzheimer's patient. Uh, Alzheimer's patient, and he consumed 35 milliliters of coconut oil once daily. And so again, coconut oil contains about 15 percent of these ketogenic medium chain fatty acids. Mm-hmm. So over over several months, uh, those medium chain tri- triglycerides in this patient, the MCT oil, was it added. And increased gradually toward a four to a four-to-three mixture, et cetera. So, the big thing about this guy is that when he started taking this mixture of coconut oil plus just the MCTs along with it, his uh, mental mini-mental status examination improved from a 12, which is bad, okay, to a high of 20 70 days later. So. This guy had an eight-point improvement in his Mini Mental Status Examination in 75 days using MCTs. That's there's not a drug that I know of that will do that. I mean, drugs for the most part have really failed in treating these people with neurodegeneration. But for me, uh, you know, MCTs are a really exciting, <laughs> exciting thing that we can use. Now, another study was done last year that showed that 56 grams per day of MCTs improved memory in six subjects with mild cognitive impairment. Now, the coconut oil I was talking about, uh, what are those ketogenic medium-chain fatty acids? Well, one's called C8, which is caprylic acid, the other one's called C10, which is capric acid. So you really don't want C12, which is lauric acid, and that's about 50% of coconut oil. So. Coconut oil, and the reason I'm telling you guys this is so when you try to find out what what MC2 oil you want to get someone, you don't want to pay for stuff you don't need. So coconut oil is about 14 grams per tablespoon. So if you tried to use coconut oil, and someone's going to ask you this, if you tried to use coconut oil, you'd have to take 28 tablespoons of coconut oil to get 56 grams of the medium-chain triglycerides, that produce the ketone body. So don't do that. Yeah, that's just okay. too much.
0: So, just so how do we go right to the MCT oil? Where do we get this?
1: There's a bunch of people that make it. A bunch of people make these. A bunch of people make MCT oil that is just those two ketogenic MCTs. Uh, Gero makes one. Uh, Crayon, uh, Crayon Research makes one. Uh, Biotics makes one called BioMCT. It's 100% caprylic acid. There's only two that I know of that make 100% caprylic acid, so they're kind of like, in my opinion, they're the the most bang for your buck. Uh, Biotics makes one, and there's a the company Bulletproof uh, makes one called Brain Octane Oil that's 100% caprylic.
0: You know what's funny? I'm hearing you talk about the MCT oil, and that's what came into my mind because I mean, I know a lot of people that are a fan of putting that in their coffee. And hey, listen, uh-huh. I'm not gonna lie to you. I, I that's what I enjoy on the way uh, to the gym uh, this morning. I had I, I put a little butter or coconut oil in my coffee, blend it up. And that's just what I have instead of putting sugar. I love the taste and that's what I do it for. You know, uh, people make some crazy claims with that stuff and that's not what I'm going after. I just like the way it tastes. Um, But I've never put the MCT oil and I just had a a friend of mine who started doing it and he literally said, he goes, hey, I feel really good with this MCT oil and recommended that that Octane one from that company. So uh, that's, after hearing you, I really want to try this.
1: No, you should. It's a, it's really, it's a, I've, I've used them myself. I use them in a lot of different patients with mitochondropathies. We also use them with uh, people with uh, neurodegeneration because it's not that expensive, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't, and you don't have to give them that much. To, it's like one tablespoon of any of this stuff I've just said. That's 14 grams of those ketogenic uh, uh, MCTs. So there's a lot of different ones. Just make sure you're not paying for something you don't need. Right. Um, I know we don't have that much time left, and I meant to get more into uh, caloric restricted intermittent fasting.
0: But You know what? Maybe maybe we bring you back to talk about that because that's a topic and I, I practice intermittent fasting. I'm fascinated by it and I think other people would well, like to learn more.
1: Yeah, well, let's just hit a couple things real fast. Sure. So people should know there's lots of different ways to do it. There's alternate day fasting, there's whole day fasting, there's what we call time-restricted uh, feeding. Uh, basically, all ha- any form of fasting that's intermittent like this means you've got different periods of fasting and different periods of feeding. There's lots of different ways to do it. It depends a lot on the person. Um, alternate day fasting means you have some days where you eat whatever you want and then you have some days where you don't eat anything Mm
2: -hmm.
1: except on the, except that's not entirely true because on the day where you're not supposed to eat anything, most guidelines say, Hey, you can have one meal on this quote unquote fasting day where you're eating 25% of what would normally be your daily calorie needs. And there's a whole chart I can show you guys where you can look and you know, and you can figure out what that would be. Whole day fasting is the simplest form, and basically it's one to two days of complete fasting per week, but the other days you eat whatever you want.
0: Right. I like. That, I always did Monday, Thursday. Those are my fasting days.
1: Yeah, I, I personally can't do that. I mean, I have to do a thing where I have to have some calories for the day. The point is, is overall, you're not necessarily increasing, decreasing your total calorie intake for the week. It's the timing of the calorie intake, okay? So without getting in all the metabolic machinery, it is really, really, really effective in inducing mitophagy and autophagy. And if you understand what those processes are, we want those things to be functioning at a high level because mitophagy and autophagy are essentially the the brain's and the body's way of cleaning up uh, damaged mitochondria, damaged organelles. And when you have a failure of autophagy or mitophagy, that can trigger the stuff we've been talking about. That can trigger, Neuroinflammation. It can turn on microglia. It can trigger apoptosis and necrosis. So the whole thing can can, can just start a, a cascade.
0: You know, I, I, um, in, in my mind, I always said it was like a a way to give my physiology a chance to clean itself up because I'm not burdening yeah. it with uh, basically processing food that we eat all day. So I was like, all right, I'll let my physiology kind of do its thing and to take some burden off, let it do some good things. And that's the way I always thought about it. Yeah.
2: So
1: here's what I'll say as a last kind of guideline. So calorie restriction is distinct from fasting. And calorie restriction is about a twenty to forty percent reduction in your daily calorie intake. Mm-hmm. Now, some people like a lot of medical, some medically, uh, medically they medically supervise this stuff. Intermittent fasting involves a feast day on which you eat whatever you want, and then a fast day. Okay. Uh, another form of intermittent fasting that I was just talking about is only eating one meal per day. So there's there's a million different ways you can do it, but one of the things that we know intermittent fasting will affect. It, it, we know that it will uh, affect four brain regions for sure. Check this out. Hippocampus, striatum, hypothalamus, and your brain stem. Those are pretty important areas. And that's from a study that was done uh, last year in sports medicine. The other thing about intermittent fasting is it enhances parasympathetic activity, which is huge, right? I mean, very, very important to have parasympathetic versus sympathetic uh, balance. So we know that intermittent fasting will affect those brain regions and also will enhance sympathetic, excuse me, parasympathetic activity.
2: Hmm.
1: It also, we know it dampens inflammation. So I can't say enough good things about it, and there's a million different ways to do it. And perhaps we can come back and and do another short podcast on how to calculate you know what would work for a certain patient population and what you know what calories do you need? Um, but I think that's probably enough information to cram down people's <laughs> uh brains uh in one podcast. So let me let me give you the let me give you the 10-second review.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Neuroinflammation can be triggered by peripheral inflammation, it can be triggered by uh you know, obviously insults, it can be triggered by sympathetic overactivation. Once you get neuroinflammation that becomes chronic, then you can start to lead to apoptosis, uh necrosis, and then you tip over into neurodegeneration. And neurodegeneration is different because you lose structure and you lose function. Okay, Risk factors include vitamin D that's pretty low, like less than 20, obesity, living near uh, heavy traffic, old age, and there's a lot of different things you can do to impact it. Um, diet, the, most, the one that's been studied the most, I think, is the Mediterranean diet, which is not paleo, um, but it is shown to be very effective. Ketone bodies are extremely useful in helping Get around mitochondrial complex defects. They also provide a a brain fuel source. Fasting and caloric restriction improve mitophagy and autophagy, and you can get ketone bodies where you want them without doing a ketogenic diet. You can do that simply by using MCT oils, particularly the C8 and C10, and those are things you can use. And uh, I don't know if you guys provide. I don't know if you have. If you want to. Provide slides to people to download with the podcast or not, but I can we can give them a couple of the slides where I break. I tell you, hey, here's the brands that have got that. I don't know if you want to do that or not, but
0: yeah, yeah we can do that. I
1: think they'd appreciate it. Yeah, it's just to save them a little time, so they don't have to remember it. Uh, but anyway, that that's what I want to leave you with is that you can change the trajectory of neurodegeneration even once it's started, but always suspect this in people that have apparently idiopathic physical fatigue or mental fatigue, and that's a lot of people, folks. Not just someone who's got Parkinson's and Alzheimer's. It's happening long before then, and you could be very proactive and and really save the quality of someone's life by recognizing that their physical fatigue and their mental fatigue could be neurodegeneration happening right then.
0: Listen, this is really, really great. Hey, Dr. Clark, I did want to say something that uh, maybe our scholars don't know. If they weren't at the International Symposium in Clinical Neuroscience, I wanted to say publicly, uh, again, congratulations. You were named uh, Educator of uh, the Year by the Carrick Institute. And I just want to applaud you because uh, your neurochemistry course and clinical nutrition course was the best nutrition education I've ever received, and I have my master's in, in nutrition, so I, I do my I do my bit of, fair bit of studying. Your course was amazing, and Thanks. so congratulations to you.
1: Thank you, appreciate that. That was that hey, uh, no. was a big honor for me personally.
0: So, <laughs> well, listen, Dr. K- uh, Dr. Clark, thank you very much, uh, and congratulations again for becoming Educator of the Year. And of course, I'm going to invite you to uh, come on back because I know you have a cool. lot to share. So, thank you very much.
1: Hey, you're welcome. Thanks a lot. You guys have a great day.
0: All right, bye bye. If you enjoyed this podcast and would like to make any suggestions for any future podcast topics, please visit the Contact Us page on CarrickInstitute.com.